This episode, I'm joined once again by Professor Paul Bishop, who is the author of multiple books on the work of Carl Jung and Friedrich Nietzsche. In this episode, we discuss Paul Bishop's latest commentary on Friedrich Nietzsche's The Antichrist, alongside discussing the work of Rudolf Steiner, the work of Carl Jung, belief, atheism, and more. I'd like to say a big thank you to all my paid patrons and subscribers for making this work possible. And if you would like to support Amidics, gain access to some exclusive content, or just keep the podcast running, then please find links in the description below. Otherwise, please enjoy. So, Paul Bishop, once again, thanks for joining us on Amidics Podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me uh, We are going to be discussing uh, recently published, I believe it was January January this year, it was released, um, right. a Nietzsche's The Antichrist, A Critical Introduction and Guide from the sort of slowly being released, there's three so far, Edinburgh Critical Guides to Nietzsche. Um, I guess somewhat surprisingly, but also unsurprisingly, this is actually the first episode out of now around 200 where Nietzsche has been actually the primary focus. He keeps coming up around the edges. Everyone puts him in their hermetic's room. Everyone wants to talk to him despite him being criminally and critically shy and probably really wouldn't want to talk to anyone. Um, yeah, he's he's around the fray, but probably because I'm trying to deal with the unknown thinkers and all these people on the fringe. But there's, I would argue, I guess, in a certain sense, the big problem we have with Nietzsche is, okay, Nietzsche's really, really well known, but trying to, you know, I'll, I'll get on my high horse here. Um, in popular thought, Nietzsche is well known, in a certain sense, entirely wrongly most of the time, right? He is Nietzsche the nihilist, which is, he would revolve and spin in his grave if he could know, if he understood the, the legacy of his name in in popular and pop philosophy thought. Yeah, no, I think I, I, th I think that's uh, I think that's fair comment. Um, it's either Nietzsche the nihilist or, or Nietzsche the Nazi. Um, <laughs> uh, those those are the two things um, that uh, that tend to get him most of most of the time. Um, and I'm not surprised when you say that he's been there in the background of so many of your conversations um, because. Uh, so many of the people that you've been you've been dealing with on the podcast, one way or another, will have had their own kind of Nietzsche elateness or Nietzsche experience. So, um, kind of makes sense. Well, yeah, everyone everyone has their Nietzsche era, and I guess I guess before we go on, as many people who aren't, you know, uh, studying philosophy would might go, well, hang on, Nietzsche is a is a Nazi. I think we can very quickly put a box around the Nietzsche as a Nazi, we could say there is actually a Nietzsche, well, there was a Nietzsche who was a Nazi. It just wasn't Friedrich. It was Elizabeth. And for those that don't know, it's always the, the caveat. Post, po posthumously, Elizabeth uh, Nietzsche, Friedrich's sister, inserted many anti-Semitic remarks and Nazi sympathetic remarks into Nietzsche, into Friedrich Nietzsche's work uh, as a way to sort of appease her, her, her own personal... Uh, sympathies with with Hitler, and there is of course the famous picture of her meeting Hitler, and that is pretty much as far as the uh, the actual the, any history you need to know about Friedrich Nietzsche being a Nazi, which is completely untrue. He really disliked anti-Semitism. He was also friends with uh, many many Jews. So, and of course, anyone who's read his work would just completely understand. Just yeah. no, no. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's fair comment. I think that I, I, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, and uh, yeah, there, there, there is that incredible picture of uh, uh, Elizabeth Furster Nietzsche um, uh, welcoming uh, uh, Hitler to the to the to the Weimar Nietzsche archives, and uh, 
um, is he giving her a Vortan stock or the other way around? Anyway, it, so all of the kind of really dark or Germanic stuff is, uh, is is going on there. But you're absolutely right. That's that's nothing to do with uh, with Nietzsche himself. He's uh, he's long since dead and buried by uh, by then. Um, where I think the argument has not so much traction, but it's it's the thing that's put about by people like Georg Lukacs and and so on, is this question of Nietzsche's view of irrationalism or, or his view of reason and and um, subsequently the way that is read as a kind of irrationalism. Um, and, and also because of his uh, discourse around um, genetics and race. Mm. Um, uh, and uh, again, the argument goes, right, well, you know, Friedrich himself didn't uh, didn't intend all this to happen with, with people wearing swastikas and marching up and down, but it somehow facilitated or whatever. That's a, that's a much harder argument, but I, I would want to say, if you if you understand this biological metaphor that, that, that Nietzsche is using, um, that's really what it is. It's a mm. metaphor. Um, and mm. uh, and there are plenty of other problematic metaphors that, that Nietzsche and other thinkers have. So an attention to language, I think, is the way to solve those things. But you're absolutely right. Um, uh, the, uh, the connection that's made there is mainly one for polemical reasons against what Nietzsche stands for. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, these might they, the, the, those ideas probably will come up again in a certain sense. However, we move we move into the Antichrist, or and just Antichrist at certain points. And really, you know. I mean, what could we say of Nietzsche's corpus? We could say, of course, thus spoke that Zarathustra is, is, in a certain sense, once again, I'll put on my elitist hat and say that it's sort of read removed, right? It's almost like this canonized book. We go, oh, I've read, I've read the canon. I've read, but it's like, well, yeah, you know, it's a great book. And it's, it's poetic, it's literary, it's a fantastic book to just read. However, sort of taking it out of the context, you know, there is this whole other thing of Nietzsche going on. And so, uh, you know, as you, I sort of thought about this and I thought, what would what would have people sort of read? I mean, thus spoke Zarathustra, of course, maybe the gay science, maybe the genealogy of morals is these very key canonical philosophical texts. However, as you make clear in, in this new commentary on the Antichrist, the Antichrist is um, it's quite a slim volume and it's it's overlooked. It's not forgotten, you know, it's there in a Penguin edition, but it's overlooked. Why is this, Paul? Yeah, no, I, I, think, uh, I think you're right. Um, it's not without good reason that Zarathustra is seen as being the, the great book and, and centerpiece because that, that's partly how, how Nietzsche himself, of course, uh, wants, to, uh, wants to present it. Um, and, it's, and, and it's work which is still getting commentary, still being understood. I mean, it's, it's an almost inexhaustible uh, text in many in many respects. Mm. Um, I, I just add on to that list of significant texts that people read by by, by Nietzsche and so on is both the tragedy uh, because mm. that's one of the ways which which hooks Nietzsche into people coming from maybe the more literary uh, things. Um, but, but I don't think you're going to find many classicists um, talking about both the tragedy. Today. If, you, if you give Mary Beard a go, see if she'll come on and talk about both the tragedy with you. That'd be a fascinating episode. So what is it about the Antichrist which leaves it to be uh, to be overlooked and, and some? Uh, well, partly, I think, there is, of course, um, the title itself. <laughs> Antichrist. I'm not sure if you want to be seen walking around buying a copy of Waterstones, so best ordered on Amazon, maybe. It, it's provocative, and, uh, and, and Nietzsche's whole approach is provocative, and I think that's problematic for how he's often received and seen to uh, today. Because it's one of the late works also, I think, is often seen from... The perspective of Nietzsche's madness—that's perhaps another third stick that's used to beat him as as well. 
And the idea is that these late texts, Etse Homo, this biographical, autobiographical law back on his life, and the Antichrist, it seems, well, they're, they're just products of, of madness. Um, again, I'd want to combat that. And I think if you see how, how, how subtly and carefully they're composed, it's, uh, it's a strange kind of madness, if, it will, if that's the right term at all. Um, I think also, of course, it tackles the taboo subject of religion, mm. religious belief or, or non-belief. I think that it's hard to find a discursive space uh, for, that, uh, for that today. One notices that uh, even people like Richard Dawkins, you don't hear so much from him, <laughs> so that's maybe a good thing, um, but it's, it, it's difficult to talk about religion. And I think Nietzsche helps us understand why that is the, the case. I think also um, Antichrist, or what is the figure of Antichrist, which we'll come on to talk about, no doubt, it assumes a knowledge about Christianity Mm. which simply isn't there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and it's, it's, it's as a critique of religion and as a, as a critique of Christianity, it's, um, it's very oblique, um, uh, for, I think, for many people nowadays, because Nietzsche would have assumed at the end of the 19th century that people would have automatically known things about Christianity, mm. either Christianity in general or, or the tradition that he came from, Protestantism in, in particular, simply not the case. So it's hard to find a point of, point of entry. Um, and finally, reflected in the title, but also in some of the expressions that he uses in it, the fact that Nietzsche has this strategy one could call argumentational offensiveness. Um, <laughs> he, he, he does go out of his way at times to, uh, to provoke the reader, and, and that's not the style we're used to at the moment. I mean, Nietzsche's not politically correct, he's not woke, and that, I think, is then going to be difficult for people to read him today. Mm-hmm, mm. But it's their loss, I think. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I'll draw in quite a few things. We'll get to the figure figure of who the actual Antichrist is, because, I mean, that's actually quite an interesting question, um, obviously. Um, but drawing in a few things you've said with regards to, firstly, Dawkins, and also bringing in this foundation of... The, I, I sort of, I don't know if you'd agree with this, I almost have a problem with Nietzsche being subsumed under the the atheist belt of thinkers, because the predominant... Uh, strain of atheistic thought in the modern world and from the re- from the enlightenment position was right we need to disprove god right we need to prove that he isn't real right so i almost see it as a horseshoe where you have people such as voltaire you have the enlightenment thinkers and their whole thing was wasn't to do with belief it was to do with no we don't care about belief we care about the fact that this god you're talking about actually isn't real and it was a very scientific way of disproving it that sort of set route then you come through to Nietzsche at the top of this horseshoe. This is how I'm seeing it. And he's, 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 he accepts this, right? His whole point is we can't believe. It's not to do with whether or not God isn't real. It's to do with we cannot believe. We live in a world where we cannot believe. And the problem with Dawkins, the new atheist, I think as anyone who's read that history, you go, hang on, you're going backwards. You've gone back to the enlightenment phase. We've done that. Nietzsche's struggle was, well, how do we get beyond this? And so... You know, to put out this foundation, I think a lot of people think of Nietzsche as like this this atheist of disproof, but there's very, very little in Nietzsche's work of here is why God isn't real. He doesn't really care. Uh, he's saying, look, we, we can't believe, and that's the big the big point for him. We just cannot believe anymore. Yeah, that, yeah no, I, th- I think that's a very interesting question as to um, uh, whether the category of, of atheist is, is, is a useful one for Nietzsche. Um, I'd, I'd, I would agree with that. I don't think it is because it doesn't. It doesn't really capture his uh, his, his position uh, correctly. Um, but, I mean, I think the point about the alignment mentioned Voltaire, 
um, and think of the different strands of the Enlightenment, whether it's German or French or English or English or Scottish, um, is that it, 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 it isn't atheist either. It's, mm. it, 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 for the most part, has a, a deistic outlook, very, very comfortable with the idea of God or, or even insistent on the idea of there, there was a God. Voltaire has a little chapel built um, at, at the end of his life it is, and, and, and is concerned that he receives the last rites and, and so on. Um, but what they have a problem with is the idea of this is all backed up by by miracles. Mm. Um, uh, so so they, they want a rationalistic conception of God. They're very, very happy with that. In fact, they're going to insist on that. But what they don't want to are, are, are miracles and irrationalism and so on. And also, of course, what they don't want, they don't want is the church. So there's a question of, of political and social power that's being exercised as well. Um, so Ecclesi Lanfamme says, says, says Voltaire, um, and you can, you can see why this whole Enlightenment project ties up with the French Revolution and, and drives it and why the French Revolution that turns this into a in, in, into a reality. But, but it isn't atheist. Um, and I think that in many ways, Nietzsche is more addressing himself, one might say, to atheists than to, than to believers in certain, in certain respects. And I'd go on and say he's also addressing uh, the situation that we find ourselves in an, an Enlightenment or post-Enlightenment world, which is, Nietzsche thinks we still believe in things. Um, we we haven't really gone far enough. Um, so he says, um, you know, going back and thinking about the the rationalist view the Enlightenment has, cause and effect. Something he says, no, this is just a belief, um, and, and something we've got to get rid of. And so, in a way, the Enlightenment, the problem with the Enlightenment for Nietzsche is that it is still too faithful. It is too. It is is in itself a kind of belief. Or faith form, and we need to go beyond that. That's his position. I would, I would say. Mm. Okay, okay. How do we go? How do we go beyond that then? How do you even begin to go beyond that? Well, that is why I think we come back to this question of, of nihilism. Is this is this dual approach that, uh, that that Nietzsche wants to offer? Of on the one hand, destructing, destroying, deconstructing uh, things. Um, that 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 negative nihilistic aspect of his of, of his thought, um, uh, wanting to use the, the the hammer of the philosophers and so on, wanting to be against things, antichrist, wanting wanting to be uh, uh, to be oppositional, um, in order to break through that into uh, and that's what Zarathustra is really the grand statement of the possibility of something which is new and a non-religious, non-metaphysical form of, of transcendence. And the whole problem with that project, and, and the reason why you then have to cast it in the form of a, a quasi-biblical, quasi quasi-lyrical epic like, like Zarathustra, is of course that from our, our current state, we can't say what that's going to look like. Hmm. If, we, if we could, we'd already be there. Hmm. And that's why I think Nietzsche is full of this rhetoric um, which is to be taken seriously about embarking out onto the ocean, never has the horizon appeared so magnificent and, and so on, but also the sense of, well, there is a loss. We've burnt our bridges. We can't go back. There's the thrill of the open sea, but also a sense of anxiety about what, what monsters might still lurk within it. Mm. Does, do, you, do you think Nietzsche sees us as basically, you know, we, we, we're sort of, courageous enough to get on the boat but we do keep looking back at this corpse of god and he he 
Yeah. There's there's no way we can stop doing this for quite for quite a while, you know. I mean, this is the big th- I think the big the big irony I guess in a certain sense of the God is dead statement. In some sense I think when you read that when you're younger you you, you do read it as an a primarily an atheistic statement with regards mm-hmm. to the actual existence. But ultimately the 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 strangeness of that statement, you know, God is dead and everyone forgets yeah. the second bit we have killed him does admit to the existence of God. <laughs> you know, yeah. well, he was real, he was alive, but now he's dead. Um, and I think I'm not sure Nietzsche ever really escapes or, or feels we've ever escaped the corpse. Yeah, that uh, I think it's a very good good point. There is um, kind of what I think Heidegger's arguing in some ways is that in some sense uh, Nietzsche in the end fails. But one could read, one could translate what you're saying. I think into a kind of Heideggerian view, in which to say that ultimately. Um, Nietzsche, the non-metaphysician, falls back into in, in, into metaphysics again. What would want to say Nietzsche, the atheist, the, the antichrist or anti-Christian, um, falls back into some kind of uh, some kind of belief again. Um, but I've seen Nietzsche as himself being very much aware of that, which is why uh, one of his very last statements um, in uh, in the very late work, Etse Homo, is to ask the reader very directly, um, "Have I been understood?" And then to provide the answer in this puzzling, provocative form, Dionysus against the crucified. And that, that so obviously keeps things within a, a some kind of a theological discourse. Um, and, and so obviously, so in a way that one, one overlooks it. Um, so, so I think, right, that it's this, this question of the corpse of God is very, very uh, uppermost in Nietzsche's mind. And I think it's there in that passage in the, the Gay Science 125, where it's first of all announced that the madman isn't so much addressing believers; mm. he's he's addressing the atheists. Um, the madman comes in saying, I'm, "I'm I'm looking for God. I'm looking for God." As many of those who did not believe in God were standing around just then, he provoked much laughter. They say, "Oh, has he got lost? Has he has he has he gone on a voyage? Is he hiding and so on?" And 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 it's to them that the madman speaks. The the madman jumps into their midst and pits them with his eyes. So the entire message about God is dead. I think is directed to the atheists, not mm. other believers. Mm. Mm. I mean, jumping back to something you said, you know, Nietzsche as an anti-Christian, the 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 strangeness once again, and on and of specifically the Antichrist, the text, he is anti-Christian, but he is an anti-Christ. So the text, the Antichrist, is actually not anti-Christ. <laughs> I think that I, I think that's an, that's an important point. And and it and it's an ambiguity which is um, very naturally there. One might say in in, in the German, uh, der Antichrist very naturally means and the anti-Christian, as well as as well as the Antichrist. So there's, there's kind of ambivalence that's uh, that's that's built into that. And I think therefore, uh, just kind of expanding on your your, your question there, the, the, the term Antichrist, one. It, it, it's an anti-Christian position, and it's about uh, Nietzsche's attack on the the institutions of Christianity, on on the organised religious aspect of of Christianity. Um, it's not so much anti-Christ as anti-Saint Paul in ways that we're wanting that we, we'd probably want to go on and, <laughs> and, and talk about. Um, uh, so so there's 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 some subtle play that's there. Uh, and finally, of course, it is invoking this, this um, what should one say, demonic apocalyptic kind of figure 
of the of the Antichrist, and that I think is is, is Nietzsche very much playing with the uh, with the reader and a kind of um, mocking self uh, self stylization that we find uh, occasionally in his in his letters when he says, "Oh, you know, oh, people are going to call me the Antichrist," and and so on. So again, it's part of this um, how shall one say uh, uh, kind of proto postmodernist play with his uh, with his identity that when he says the Antichrist it's really going to all be about Nietzsche. And, and that fits, I think, that there is an aspect to all of that in Nietzsche's writings, but that is because, as he told uh, Lufon Salome, he thinks that all philosophy is really a kind of bio a biography or a kind of autobiography. Mm. And I mean, it, it's often said in in, um, in relation to this, that, you know, if Nietzsche was alive today, I mean, in the, in the relation to the fact, or with regard to the fact that he took on Christianity as the institution, I think it's difficult for us from from our position now to see or to understand the absolute sort of uh, hegemonic power as an institution Christianity had in in Nietzsche's day, right? It was the thing. It was uh, uh, from a Nietzschean standpoint, I guess, in a certain sense, you could say that you know it was the the mass opium of everyone, right? And that was how he would see it. And so it's often said that if he was alive today, though I don't say what he might take on as our opium, but it's often said today, you know that he would he might be taking on something such as democracy you know these these absolutely unquestioned supports that we fall back on as a as a collective mass of people um do you think there's any truth to that or do you think he might still be uh, brandishing his sword against christianity today uh no i think i i think you're quite right that um his 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 targets may shift slightly i think it's still have about the church i think he'd i think he'd be um probably even more bracing about islam uh although he has some quite positive things to to say about islam in uh, in, in places um i think he would have a go at um other subjects which are already there in his his writings his targets and um and uh, make his reception a little bit problematic um certainly democracy um, I, I, I think he'd want to take on, and I think he'd want to take on, and you can see it there in the Antichrist as well, a belief which is um, nowadays for us in, in the West um, uh, fundamental um, and unquestioned in that, in that sense that you talked about it, which is the idea of equality. I think Nietzsche really gets worked up about uh, equality, which he thinks has been um, brought to us. Um, by Christianity, you think it's this this, this big mistake of um, of making everybody equal and thereby, in his in his view, leveling down, um, has been one of the great effects uh, side effects of, uh, of of Christianity. That's that's one of the reasons why he wants to oppose it as well. And I think you're right to talk about the the hegemonic power uh, of, of of the church in uh, in the West and in and in Europe, and and in particular in Germany as as part of the uh, the system, we should say, the institutions of, uh, of philosophy. One thinks of uh, somewhere like the Tübinger Stift as being a place for training Protestant priests. And it's out from the Tübinger Stift that you get um, uh, thinkers like Schelling and Hegel, um, who become immensely influential. Um, Hegel is one of the more kind of hidden targets, I think, that's, uh, that's present in, in Nietzsche's thinking as, as, as well. Um, and that's because Hegel is a, an attempt to rework Christian ideas through in a post-Kantian metaphysics. Nietzsche hates that as well, of course. So he's, <laughs> he's got lots of targets and he's going in there flailing in all directions, I think. Mm. Do, you, do you think he, um, this bringing about of equality, do you think he sees that coming from 
primarily from Christ, as in the actual figure of Jesus Christ, or does, do you think he sees that as a, a Pauline insurgent? Because in terms of Nietzsche's work, I don't think I've ever seen a philosopher hate anyone more than Nietzsche hates St. Paul. Yeah, true, uh, true question. Um, I, 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 two, two parts to, to what I say about that, I think. First, first of all, um, uh, it, it, it isn't anything to do with Christ himself, this this vehicle of, uh, of equality, as it were. It's all to do with the organization of the church that gets set up um, following, the, uh, fo- following the death of Christ. Um, and he sees, uh, he, he sees what, what happens there as um, a, um, he, has, he has this term, doesn't he, about the slave revolt um, and morality that takes place. He sees this as, as another expression of that slave revolt of, of morality, which is one says all are equal uh, in, the eyes of, in the eyes of God. Um, and that becomes a kind of an important, important doctrine. All need to be saved. Um, and in that sense, all are equal in the, eyes of, in the eyes of God. And then this organization called the church comes along and is going to enable that salvation um, if, one, if one follows its, uh, it, its doctrinal thinking. So um, it, it isn't anything to do with Christ himself. And in the Antichrist, he has relatively little to say about Christ. What he does have to say is, uh, is, is positive. And that brings me on to the second point, which is the real target. <laughs> Is, uh, is is St. Paul. Um, extraordinary comments that one finds in Nietzsche's work, um, both both in earlier ones like, like Dawn, when he really gets worked up against St. Paul, um, and and sees uh, Paul as really the, um, the, the the metaphysical mind behind the, uh, the creation of, of, of Christian doctrine. On Nietzsche's account, um, Christ is an entirely non-doctrinal kind of figure, non-doctrinaire, shall we say. It's about a, it's about a practice. It's about a, a way of life. Um, it's about a it's about a worldview, a way of being in the in the moment. And all of that, he thinks, is completely different from what St. Paul uh, brings to the theological table, which is all about revenge. It is about resentment. Um, it's about manufacturing sins, which can then, which, which, which then the, uh, the powerful priests are going to take away from us, and, and so on. Um, and it's a bit surprising in in a way, because um, in a way, it's a it's a kind of cartoon figure that he that he creates for St. Paul. Um, it seems to me that one of the things that twentieth century theology did was to prove, as if it hadn't already been. <laughs> in the works of Luther and other theologians, just how subtle, how complex, how significant, yes, but but um, how rich a thinker Paul is. Um, you don't find any of that from uh, from, from Nietzsche. There's, there's, there's no kind of anticipation of Karl Barth or anybody else in the way that Nietzsche sets, uh, sets about it. And I think that what he's doing is really using the figure of Paul as a kind of well, straw man's maybe kind of a little polemical way of, of putting it, but he's using him as a, a personage conceptuel. He's saying, what what's happened through this institutional ball? Let's put it like that. This mm-hmm. institutional figure of Paul that's come down uh, through the ages, through the uh, through the teaching of the church, is something which is, in his view, completely opposed to what it is that Christ stood for. Mm. So does he does he see Christ almost in the uh, I need to get these right, the Dionysian spirit of someone who's developed their own uh, sort of a very vital system of love, of spirit, of of something very personable. And it's almost that difference between um, 
this comes up in the work of René Girard, but the difference between a, a disciple and a follower. So a disciple is someone who sort of understands on an essence level what the what the, the teaching is, and then they can go mm. off and they can develop their own thing. Whereas a follower for Girard is very mm. dangerous because they, they're just a mimic. And in that mm-hmm. sense, they tend to constrain and they say, well, we, you know, it's almost like saying we have to love. And it's like, well, that's not how love works. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think that um, and I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to think about whether whether one of the things that's interesting about the figure of Christ in, um, in, in the book, The Antichrist, is that in, it really escapes categorization in terms of the Dionysian and the, and, and the Apollonian. It, in many ways, I think Nietzsche's wanting to say that it, it escapes any kind of characterization at all because it is um, about a mode, of, uh, a mode of being. It's, um, it's about a mode of being which is, which is authentic, um, the kind of being which I think in many ways Nietzsche encourages us in his his non-disciple-like conception of what it means to be to be a follower that he'd that he'd want us to, as 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 readers and thinkers in his in, in his tradition to be uh, to be interested in um he he talks about the idea of the, the kingdom of god um and says well look this idea it it isn't to be read in any kind of a political sense. Um, it's, it's, it's a non-political idea, and, and nor is it anything which is to be read in a, um, a, a dogmatic sense. It's about a, a purity of being in the, in the moment. It's therefore about something which is essentially non-communicable. And, and in many ways, I think what Nietzsche sees as the problem with Christian theology is that it, it's trying to communicate what at the end of the day is is incommunicable. And of course, there we have a problem, which is, well, if you've got something, if you've got an insight and you think it's important, how are you, how are you going to communicate it? One of the big themes in Zaratustra itself is Nietzsche thinks he's really clocked to what's been happening in the history of, uh, of Western metaphysics. How does one get that across to people? It's there also in that parable 125 in, in the Gay Times, because this man is, is is a madman and is is, is treated as a madman and, and is laughed at. Um, and, and there's this constant problem that I think Nietzsche's drawing his attention to. How do we talk about things that we don't want to talk about? How do how do we create a discursive space? I think that's what he's trying to do in his in his works through this provocative style. How how do we get sufficiently clear space in order to uh, to talk about to talk about religion, to talk about belief, um, to talk about life? To, to talk about death, um, and I think his uh, his animus against St Paul is because, on the basis of St Paul, one can set up wonderful theological systems, and the Christ that he wants to present us in the Antichrist is 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 anti-systematic in in, in, in the purest sense. Mm-hmm. Okay, which brings us to the figure, the figure of the Antichrist. Of course, the book is called yeah. the Antichrist. I mean, yeah. it's a pretty pretty basic question, but who or what is the Antichrist? <laughs> Well, I'm sure if you look on uh, on, on some some YouTube sites, you'll find uh, very interesting answers to it, mm. and um, uh, we'd be able to point to various various contemporary figures. Um, and it, it is, of course, in a way, a bit of a a, a bit of a puzzle. It's it's a, a figure that's uh, there on the on, on the periphery, I think, of um, the biblical texts as they've come down to us. Uh, we find it in the letters of St. John, so it's it's in, invoked as a uh, a figure which is opposed to, uh, to Christian belief. Um, I think you can see the idea of an, an anti-Christian figure is something which is very interesting to the, the, the Gnostic tradition, which even if it has different 
terms for for, for them is going to um, is going to uh, pursue this idea of the the implicit dualism that's built into the idea of Christ and Antichrist. It, it's seen, I think, in the in the first century um, of the of the Common Era as being a representation of the of the Roman Empire. Um, so it's part of this problematic. Well, there's a mild way of putting it, isn't it? This relationship between an, uh, a, a nascent Christianity and the Roman authorities, the whole question of martyrdom, um, the early Christians refusing to uh, sacrifice to the pagan gods, the Roman gods, the state gods, um, and being um, executed and bearing witness thereby. Um, Nietzsche's no time for, the, uh, uh, for any of the martyrs whatsoever, thinks they're entirely un unconvincing. Um, as a counterfigure to Christ's agnostic overtones, it's also one that is then picked up in the 19th century by um, biblical critics or biblical historians like uh, Ernst uh, Renan, uh, by novels like uh, Merishkovsky. So it's kind of it's kind of in the air at the at the time as well. But I think it's something that that Nietzsche also wants to give um, a, a positive a positive meaning to. And if uh, if one has one's copy of um, Genealogy Morals at Hand in um, part, book two, section 12. There's a great passage where he talks about um, what he wants to come. And he says, what he wants to come is the redeeming man or the redeeming individual of great love and contempt, the creative spirit whose compelling strength will not allow him to rest in any aloofness. He says, what he wants is to come is someone who is um, a bell stroke of noon and of the great decision that liberates the will again, restores its goal to the earth and his hope to humankind. This antichrist and anti-nihilist, this victor over God and nothingness, he must come one day. So that's kind of Nietzsche's version really of the Annunciation. So it has both a Christian meaning and a very specific one in the context of the Nietzschean corpus as well. Mm. Doesn't the doesn't the devil in Christian tradition call himself the liberator at one point? He came to live came to liberate. I can't remember, but um, it's um, interesting. Uh, to be honest, I don't I don't know. I mean, the devil is certainly the master of the world, the master of lies, um, and and in that sense, I think his cognate the figure of Antichrist is representing the uh, representing the Rome uh, the, the Roman Empire. Mm. Um, but I think the idea is that, uh, that whereas the devil is um, a, a fallen angel, the Antichrist is is um, a fallen man who might represent a fallen system. Mm. Mm. It's interesting. I mean, in, in the text that I've slowly been going through recently, The Meditations on the Tarot by Valentin Tomberg, and also reading some stuff about Rudolf Steiner, just to draw that in, because mm. that's a, that's an area I really want to get to, because I was shocked, Paul, that to find the name Rudolf Steiner, not only in an academic book in 2022, but taken seriously. Um, so my hat, my hat's off to you for managing to Don't sneak, tell people they haven't no, found it yet. <laughs> to sneak him in, yeah. Um, but this figure of the Antichrist comes up in both these works in the spiritual tradition in the 19th century, like you said, the late 19th, yeah, late 19th century. Um, and, it, and it does come about um, in a sort of Gnostic form as a sort of from you you have this split of the above of the above and the below and it's almost a development of a false or you could say an artificial or a, a dionysian above from the below so it's that whole structure built from an individual from the below uh 
to a new above in a certain sense. So it, it, I mean, the and the and the the epistemological connotations of this with regards to religion are massive because all of a sudden you're saying we don't need, we don't need uh, to draw in your other interest, Paul Freud and Jung. We don't need the, the great daddy in the sky, right? We don't need revelation. We don't need uh, this this need of the paternal above. We don't. We don't need that. We don't need a master. Um, but equally, you know, it's this middle position because you, you're not equally Nietzsche immediately recognizes, well, we can't fall into relativism, which leads us to this question of um, how in the world can, can truth be developed from this? Um, well, yeah, that's the that, that's hundred million dollar question, isn't it? Just, <laughs> just just to pick up on a couple of things there. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I Stein is such a complicated uh, <laughs> figure, and I have uh, I, I, I an ambivalences uh, about him as well. But, um, but but he's there, he's there, and of course <laughs> he starts off um, uh, working away on Goethe uh, and um, uh, being very interested in, in Nietzsche, and writes one of the first books on Nietzsche as as, as well. Uh, and I think the idea that I wanted to um, uh, use with with Stein. It was to was to see him as a a, a kind of barometer, as a kind of indicator of things that were that were important. Um, and two things which I thought were, were helpful for appreciating what what Nietzsche was up to at, at more or less the same at uh, the same time mm. was first of all Stein's interest in the um, in, in in the Greek mysteries, uh, the ancient mysteries, and, and 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 that goes back to Nietzsche's birth of tragedy. Uh, and um, his his references to the Eleusian uh, mysteries in, uh, in in that work, obviously the whole the whole uh, metaphoric use that he makes of um, of Greek mythology, Dionysus and Apollo, that we've touched on uh, already, and and also because Steiner, um, like Nietzsche, only in a different way, it, it took Christianity seriously, but again wanted to do something something differently with it, whereas in Nietzsche, we get a full frontal assault on the, the organization and the, as it were, intellectual infrastructure, the whole theological infrastructure that goes with the that goes with the church. And what Steiner tries to do, which seems to be cut, throw the light onto that or cast it into relief, is then invent his own versions of, of Christianity, as I as I as I understand it. And that's why you then get these these new modern mystery plays um, that he wants to write, which I don't know. It seemed to be a little bit like uh, like Nietzsche's Zarathustra. It's this whole question of how do you communicate something fundamentally incommunicable. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you you think in a certain way, both Steiner and Nietzsche never really escape philology. Well, I think that's um, that's that's the central claim that I want to make um, uh, in this uh, in this critical guide. Is to see that the, the the argument which which worries Nietzsche the most about Christianity, and it ties back into what we were talking about earlier um, about the the Tübingen Stift and the, the Protestant intellectual tradition in in Germany, is the um, the insight that philolo philology gives into how texts are created and therefore how how, how thought systems are created as as well. And one of the things that um, of course Nietzsche's first um career is to uh, is to be a classical uh, philologist that's what he sees himself as, as doing tries to get into philosophy but uh, hr won't accept him uh, mm -hmm. something like that um but this stays with him because he takes it terribly seriously and in a way 
hard for us to imagine now is that he's, his fundamental objection to Christianity is philological. So what does that mean? What he wants to say is that the, uh, the Bible, as it is interpreted uh, patristically, uh, but also by uh, more contemporary thinkers as well, within the Protestant um, uh, intellectual tradition, he thinks is a, 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 misread, a misreading of it. So when, when the patristic figures say, well, whenever there's, a, whenever there's a boat or an ark, well, that's going to have to be the symbol of salvation, or whenever there's a piece of wood, that's going to be a sign of the cross and, and so on. Um, he gets very worked up about that. But he's also worked up, I think, about within the uh, within the Bible itself, within the textual corpus, and I think this is an, an implied argument rather than one that he has to has to work out, is that what he what he realised from his own work as a, as a philologist is once you've understood how a text is uh, is created, that gives you a unique insight into it, and you realise that its ultimate point of reference is is nothing really outside of itself. Kind of proto-Deridian way, but it is it is an exercise in textuality, and I think that's something that's a that's a hint that he makes, and it's it's something which I'm I'm, I'm hoping in another work to try and uh, work out a little bit more uh, a little bit more more detail, is to um it, is to show that Nietzsche's concern is related to this uh, this this philological dimension. So um, the way that the the biblical text themselves, um, as it were produce the figure of Christ. Mm. Um, the way that um, within the biblical text themselves of the of, of, of the New Testament, um, there's a lot of philological reverse engineering that goes on in order to say, well, and this is the key phrase, I think, in the New Testament is always according to the scriptures. So he dies according to the scriptures. He's, he rises on the third day in accordance with the uh, with the scriptures. Mm. And this, this whole effort is made to say, ah, if you look in the Old Testament, you can actually find Christ. And I think that that's the argument very clearly put in the first century of Christianity, both in some of the early Christian thinkers like Justin Martyr and within the biblical text itself. One, one thinks about um, Stephen's speech, um, one thinks about uh, letters of Paul, obviously, is to say, if you want to know where Christ is, look in the Bible. And for them, it's going to be, well, the Old Testament, as it's then known, is going to be in the in the Hebrew Scriptures. That is their argument, um, and I think it it raises it, it, it highlights how important that philological dimension was, and and Nietzsche thinks is if only we could get it to work anymore um, for uh, for Christianity. Um, and Nietzsche's point, I think, is is that we've reached the stage with our understanding of how texts are produced. Is that here we have a system that is created out of texts. And that's why it doesn't work anymore. That's why I think he's putting the view that we can't believe. Another reason why the Reformation was a mistake. I can't believe it. Um, but it does. If it sounds almost like solo scriptura accelerated to the point where it destroys itself, which it seems I, is that the inevitable conclusion of solo scriptura? I, I for think Nietzsche? that. Yeah, I, I, I think you're absolutely right on that point, and I, I think it's it's a point that Nietzsche himself makes where he says that the Christian criterion of truth becomes self-undermining. First of all, we have this idea of truth, and I am the truth in the life of the way, and so on. We have this idea of truth as, as being set out to combat the, um, the opposition to Christianity, the enemies of, of Christianity. But then eventually, as we work through, and then we're back to the role of the Enlightenment and, and so on, is that 
this criterion of truth then starts to turn on itself. And I think that's why, for Nietzsche, the key moment is that question put by Pontius Pilate, what is truth? And I suppose the biblical answer is, well, the truth is personified in, um, in Christ, if, um, uh, if, if one believes this. Um, or, as Bacon said, well, what is truth, says Pilate, and, and won't wait for an answer. That brings us back to this question of, of, of relativism. Relativism is, is the outcome of this self-undermining of truth, where in fact you end up with no truths at all, because mm. if everything's true, then nothing's true. Mm. So I guess we're almost stuck in a bit of a bind because in the in accordance with those people such as Heidegger who considered Nietzsche's mission a failure, well not mission, a task as a philosopher a failure and also, you know, he ultimately he went mad and it's been said that, you know, if he, if he hadn't gone mad and he'd lived, we probably have a very different view of Nietzsche. You know, this system might have, hmm. we don't know, we don't know. But do you think he would have mellowed in his old age? Do you think that? I, I, well, I mean, I'll say the controversial thing, and I think he, I think uh, he might have even come back round to uh, perhaps something more akin to orthodoxy or something like that, um, oh. something which has a, a greater emphasis emphasis on the oral tradition and uh, a very, you know, they have a very philological understanding of of the word, you know, they they often they they they're very. Uh, Die hard, I'd say. <laughs> this is not a very nice way of putting it, but die hard in their position of the languages they used. You know, read it in Greek and nothing else. And so this, this understanding of something and not you know, trying to get back to that origin. I don't know. I don't know. It's tough to say what where where Nietzsche yeah. would have been. But I mean, I guess the big question with regards to the truth between, you know, God and nihilism, and saying this this odd, not a third position because that's not how Nietzsche's thinking of it, but something beyond both these positions is well, d did he ever really get there? You know, did the madness come in? This, you know, and I'm in agreement with you, a peculiar form of madness because it's not like he's just writing gibberish. <laughs> yes, no, exactly, no, no, exactly. And I think the um, uh, the the evidence that seems to be there is that uh, the uh, the madness was um, essentially something which was it was uh, physiological that there were were physiological problems that he they inherited from his from his father. The father died um, very early uh, mm. when Nietzsche was young from, um, I think it's sort of described as softening of the brain or, mm. or something or something like that. So it, it, it could be some form of uh, inherited syphilis, um, which Thomas Mann would be very disappointed to, uh, to hear about. Um, but uh, in a way, that makes it even more tragic to, to think about Nietzsche, knowing um, how his father had died, early and knowing that he may well have this condition as uh, as as well um and i think if there's if there's one of the things which which, which drives which drives nature is this this urge to communicate before it's too late um and, and that's why i would say you know would he have mellowed or whatever hmm. is in a way i think he always knew his time was his his time was was limited that hence this furious production of of texts of very different sorts of texts so he he, he tries the, the 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 academic uh the academic way with birth of tragedy but doesn't have any footnotes so nobody likes it um he tries the aphorisms the the, the essays um uh, the essay form of course in in um, uh, the um untimely meditations which uh is also very much concerned with religious matters in in, in the form of its uh, it, its its first essay. Um, then, with the 
shorter, snappier aphorisms of um, you know, Twilight of the Idols, the epic style of uh, Zarathustra, and then this very, very ludic um, uh, kind of proto-postmodern autobiography in Etsy. Um, so he's trying, he, he's pulling all levers, I think, in order to not so much communicate something as to get us to stop and think and, um, and, and reflect. Um, and that's why it's kind of poignant today that um, Nietzsche's hard to talk about because the one thing he, wanted, wanted, he would have wanted us to do is to, is to think through these, these issues rather than the great refusal to think them too, which I think he would see as, as more typical of my time. Do you think um, the great refusal itself, as you call it, is equally part and parcel with the reasons we can no longer believe in Christianity? This is like, I'm trying to, trying to articulate what I mean by that, but a sort of just drawing a blank, drawing a line and saying we don't need to, we don't need to dwell, delve into that because we already know, right? we already know our positions, there's no need to deal with that thing it's just this elusive thing but ultimately that's the only way we're gonna go forward is in some sense to uh, i don't want to do, abide by the whole idea of progression but you know jump into the the, the murky waters and mm -hmm. or the yeah. the so-called murky waters but it, as soon as you begin to draw these hard lines and say well we no longer we no longer do that we no longer deal with these people then you're 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 sort of nowhere. You're in a very strange position of sort of uh, not to sound too pretentious, but like hyper subjectivity, where you even you even begin to decide. You just believe it because you believe it. You decide what you believe of nothing really. Well, I think that's right, and that and and that's why we then have the two figures that you uh, you mentioned earlier on, Freud and uh, Freud and Jung, as moving to the fore in the in, in the twenty in the twentieth century. Um, Freud very much arguing. Um, against religion, in, inheriting that aspect of of Nietzsche, which is um, which is which is anti anti religious. So, as you, I, I think, intimated for, for Freud, religion is essentially something which is a form of in, infantilism, um, and we've just got to grow up, man up, and, um, and deal with it, convert our neurosis into ordinary misery, uh, and, and just get on with it. And that that's one side of the psychoanalytic uh, response um, and its relation to Nietzsche. And on the other hand, and Jung, uh, who seems to me uh, a, a, a lot more differentiated, um, and, and someone who maybe understands. I mean, there's this big thing in, in Memories, Dreams, Reflections, uh, whether or not Jung wrote it, um, at where at where Jung worries. He says that I might be too much like Nietzsche. I, I wonder well, what, what's this thing that he's worried about here, and, and so on. And the thing that he comes back to time again in his in his seminar, in Jung's seminar on Zarathustra, is he says uh, Nietzsche was the son of a pastor, and and I know what that means. Um, well, he might know what it means, but I'm not sure I know. Um, and one of the things I think which is behind it is uh, Jung having witnessed um, his own father's collapse of religious faith. Again, what evidence have we got this to go on? But reading the way that it's described in Memories, Dreams, Reflections, and, and thinking about the, the, the great collapse in, in, in belief, uh, uh, which is happening in the 19th century, aside from whatever it is that Nietzsche is, uh, that Nietzsche is doing, um, is that he sees his father um, losing, his, losing his faith and yet, and yet uh, keeping on going. So going to these very sort of boring liturgies and that Jung thinks about his his own first communion and his kind of what what is that it um, there was nothing there this huge sense of disappointment that he uh, that he has and and yet at the same time 
we don't find in Jung, very obviously so, this realization with, oh, well, that's dead. Let's, we can sort of parcel that off and, and, and move on with um, uh, um, technological, technocratic lives. He says, no, there's that, that you talk about Nietzsche being worried by the corpse of God. Well, I certainly think that Jung is, um, and that Jung then wants to put his effort into um, understanding how we come to terms with that loss, as well as the possibility that, in fact, that corpse might come alive again, that there might be, as he talks about in the Red Book, a, a rebirth of God, um, that the God is going to be saved. I mean, this is the kind of quasi blasphemous language that he uses in the Red Book to talk about to talk about religion is that it's not about God saving us, it's about us saving God. And in a way, that then looks forward to his day great work, 1952, the, the answer to Job. Hmm. And his is, uh, for Jung, it's very much an, we're moving into very much an individualistic form of, uh, could we say, inner worship? I mean, it's the, he talks about that, I think we spoke about this in our talks on the Red Book, uh, on the Black Books, but the, the transition from the, uh, the, Got to get the ages right here. The age of is it the age of Aquarius into the age of Aquarius? Oh yes, from, from Pisces. Pisces into Aquarius. Yeah, mm. we're starting to sound like two new ages now. But this is the move from institutional belief in God into a very individualistic form of God, and this is quite important for you. Yeah, well, well that's right. Of course, he's he's using the. Uh, I would say him using these uh, these astrological symbols, not a, not in a new age way, but it's, uh, as part of this symbolic culture. Um, with which he would identify Christianity as as, as well. Um, and, and Jung's point is, another way of rephrasing what Nietzsche talks about in The Death of God, is that what, what Jung wants to argue is that our, our symbolic culture, the symbolicity of Western life, thought, and imagination, which has sustained us for, for so many centuries, for, for millennia, um, is that that is breaking our, or, or, or has broken. And I think that's why one finds with Jung this this dual interest in the in the symbol. On the one hand, he talks about the symbol as being um, the, the the mechanism, the bridge through which um, we create culture, and yet that sense that that symbolism is now is is now breaking down. Um, and he would see that. I'm sure he would point to the way astrology ends up just being um, kind of uh, little little comments uh, in the in the metro. Uh, something interesting is going to happen to you at work today. Um, so that symbolic dimension becomes reduced to, uh, to something in, so individual as to be to be meaningless. But I think he also sees it there with Christianity as well. In fact, there are some quite poignant passages I find in, in Jung where he wants to say, look, again, I'd like to believe, but that symbolic um, culture doesn't have its same appeal. So what are we going to do? And I think that's that's why... At, at the end of the day, he shares very much uh, uh, Nietzsche's analysis of the of, of the problem of religion, even though he looks as if there um, he's an antipode. Mm. Mm -hmm. So, uh, just jumping jumping back to you know Nietzsche's, I guess Nietzsche's project in relation to this question of what are we going to do? Do you, do you think, uh, especially specifically in relation to the Antichrist, do you think Nietzsche comes up with any tangible answer to what it is we are going to do? Or do you think this is left for him? I, I, I think I think that it's all presented, and this goes back to the uh, the, the opening passage that one finds in the uh, in the Antichrist, um, where he invokes this figure of the Hyperboreans. So so uh, this 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 mythical race of uh, of giants who live um, up there in the north or or beyond the north and some. 
And in his typical way, he starts off by saying, um, so addressing the reader, let us look each other in the face. So again, I think that's the way Nietzsche works by this direct appeal. Um, this isn't going to be a comfortable conversation. It's going to be very much a kind of one-to-one, -one, heart to heart to heart. And he says, we are hyperboreans. We know well enough how remote our place is. And what he's trying to do, I think, there is to hook into the reader, and the reader that's sympathetic to his, his project, and to say, well, they're beyond the North Wind. They are um, about going beyond the current system that we have. But it's significant that he starts off in a book about anti-Christianity, within the various senses that he uses this word, by uh, invoking these figures from, um, I, I think it's uh, Herodotus's histories. And what is essential about this mythical race is that they, it's just that they're beyond. Um, one of the commentators on Nietzsche, Lawrence Lampert, I think, talks about the Hyperboreans as being a symbol of the, of, of the inaccessible. Um, and it, it seems to me that what Nietzsche does is always to open up possibilities um, um, he never prescribes. And that mm. comment, that passage, that first section ends where he says, we haven't yet found the way. What is the formula of our happiness? A yes, a no, a straight line, a goal. Um, and I think we see this yes and no is this question about, well, what is going to be affirmed? What is going to be denied? What is going to be negated? The straight line Okay, so how are we going to radically reorientate ourselves from the various distractions that we have in our, our lives and concentrate on what's important and a goal? Um, and I think that um, in an age where the whole language of goals and target settings and personal development reviews and so on has, has kind of robbed us that sense of, of what is so radically significant to the sense of having a goal is, again, it's shot through with images of, of going beyond, of, of transcending. And in that sense, revitalizing the, the Christian the Christian notion of, of transcendence seems to me that it's about saving transcendence rather than junking it, knowing that the current vehicles that we've had, or the vehicles that we've inherited from the past, no longer deliver that, uh, that, that transcendence. Um, and I can think of numerous examples for that. Of, in a way, representatives of Christianity don't, don't even seem to believe it them, themselves. I remember going, uh, when I was in, in Strasbourg for a conference, uh, going in and admiring the cathedral, the cathedral that Goethe loved so much uh, in Strasbourg. And it's absolutely fabulous architecture, stained glass windows, beautifully atmospheric and, and so on. And in the silence and the smell of the incense and the candles burning and people walking around hushed and quiet, there suddenly ripped the sound of an electric guitar. And they were setting up Strasbourg Cathedral for a rock concert. Mm. I thought, these people don't believe you, because if you, you, you just wouldn't do that acoustically of a place no. if you believed it. And there'd be there'd been too many examples of kind of, you know, setting up helter-skelters and circus mm. things and that. And I think that that goes back to this point of Nietzsche and Jung trying to say, well, look, belief really is something important and radical and not something that can be reduced in the way that it's become. It's a shame. It's almost like a stain. It's a stain of the profane on the on the sacred, but it's. I guess it, you, you're 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 staring the the problem right right in the face in that moment with the electric guitar. Of course, I mean, mm. I don't want to do you know judge not lest you be judged, but in relation to the fact that perhaps everyone else there couldn't 
could no longer understand why that this act is such a horrible thing to do, right? Mm. So you're you're almost uh, you know as Ernst Jünger said, he was a consciousness out of time. Mm. Paul, mm. maybe you're you're of a different era. You know, you were <laughs> you're the last Hyperborean. Well, I, I I certainly feel as if I'm beyond the north wind uh, <laughs> at some time. Uh, but but I think I think it's 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 one of the ways that that the Antichrist is is such a book for our time because it it does ask difficult questions in a in a difficult way. Um, and I realised that for my part, I think it's a book which I had um, skirted around for a, for a bit. I'd sort of noticed it was there. And um, there are other texts which one maybe more drawn, uh, Zarathustra, obviously, as we've uh, as, as we've talked about. And in a way, I'd kind of avoided a little bit because um, it 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 is so robust, it is so so challenging, um, it is so rude, it is so offensive in uh, in, in places. So it, that makes it that makes it a difficult text. Um, but I think if one sees that offensiveness as, as something which is um, uh, a, a communicative strategy, it's not to excuse it. It's simply to say Nietzsche takes it seriously. And I think I think Nietzsche does take Christianity very, very seriously. Jung does as, uh, Jung does as, as well. And it may be, therefore, symptomatic that these figures are, are, are so misunderstood by not just by representatives of the of, of, of the Christian tradition. And in fact, I think you could point to loads and loads of 20th century theologians who, who are absolutely fascinated by Nietzsche. Um, Paul Tillich, um, Hans Kung, um, loads of them you could you could point to. They take it very, very seriously. But the kind of more obvious consciousness of uh, uh, that we were alluding to at the beginning is, is fundamentally to misunderstand that Nietzsche is, is a religious thinker precisely because he's anti-religious. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, is there anything you uh, you feel you'd like to add about the Antichrist that uh, is key that we haven't spoken about? No, go go and buy the Critical Guide from Edinburgh University Press, and and all will be explained. Well, not all, but a few things. Um, and my thanks to the, uh, the the editors of that series, Keith Ansel Pearson um, and Dan Conway, for inviting me to do it. Because otherwise, uh, I wouldn't have uh, sat down and engaged with it. Mm-hmm. And thank and, uh, you to you for the invitation to come and talk it uh, through on Hermetics. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, not at all. I should also thank uh, Edinburgh, uh, Edinburgh. I'm assuming it's Edinburgh Press uh, for Edinburgh University yeah Edinburgh Press. University Press for supplying me with a with a copy of it. Um, so thanks for them. And yeah, I'll be sure to put the links for it in the description below. Um, but yeah, Paul Bishop, once again, thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.